Welcome everyone to True House Stories. Each and every week we come right to you from my studio and into your humble home, thanks to Zoom. <laughs> and this week we have a strong power player right out of Brooklyn, New York. The man has made some great remixes, productions, goes as Jay Kriv. Here's the funny part. In the beginning, in the beginning, I thought this was another offshoot of Danny Krevit. Boy, was I surprised. I said, Krev? For sure I said, this has got to be Danny. And then I sure hell was corrected. I kept <laughs> seeing the guy's name not going away. I kept seeing it over and over. More records I picked up, the more stuff I listened to, the more I liked what I was hearing. It got better and better and better and longer and stronger and faster and taller, all the above. <laughs> So, please, everybody around the world, please help me welcome Mr. Jay Kriv, known as Jason Kriv. What's up, brother? Jason. Thank you. Thank you. I need, you know what I need to do? I got to be like Johnny Carson, like the Tonight Show. I need a band. I need the roots behind me. Totally. We could have started with me behind the door and I could have walked out. Yeah, we caught him in the studio under a busy workload as always. This man's working night and day, day and night to keep himself, like all of us, above, not only above the water, but also keep himself very present and very out there with his music. So, Jason, thank you for spending time with us. As you know, I know everybody preps well for this show. They do the best they can. Take a shower, they shave, and they get on their best clothes. And also, he waxed the studio. Look, he's got he's got armor <laughs> all over everything. Everything nice and clean and pristine. It's like Christmas Day there. So, first question that we start: We know you have a mom and dad, and we know you were born. How does it all begin for you? this musical journey from a young kid where do you find musical how does music find you yeah um well first of all that thanks for having me lenny it's really a, it's a pleasure to to do something like this and talk a bit uh so for me music really started like um uh i was born in in the 70s uh, i was born in 1976 so um, I became aware of music really from the radio and MTV in the early 80s, I would say. And uh, the, my first love was really rock. And it's interesting because just yesterday, Andy Van Halen passed away. And um, yeah, he was really one of the, one of the first, first huge musical influences for me. Um, I didn't, my parents were, you know, they listened to a lot of different stuff in the house. I think they're, they're, the closest thing they had to like the music that I'm into now was like the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. But you know, there was a, there's a wide range of stuff that they listened to, but I really got drawn to rock at first. And, um, you know, people like Eddie Van Halen and, and other groups of that, that type at the time were, was what inspired me. And, um, I didn't, even though I sort of got, got into it from a very young age, I would say from the time I was about six or seven, I was very, very into music. And I can remember, you know, I, I can place music from the 80s by year from really going from 1982 on because I remember it from that time. Like I can tell you in some cases if it came out in the beginning of the year or the end of the year. Um, 
So really, I was I was paying a lot of attention, but I didn't start to play or really get into music until I was about 12, uh, when I prevailed over my parents to get me some gear. And for my for my for my birthdays in seventh grade, my dad took me. I grew up in Westchester. My dad took me down to Sam Ash and White Plains and got me a uh, bass guitar and amp pack combo package that they had like the starter package um and i remember my dad was like why don't you want to play guitar don't you want to play guitar and i kind of did want to play guitar but i had a few friends who were already playing guitar and we needed to start a band so we needed a bass player so that's kind of how i ended up with bass and then bass kind of became my really became my thing i mean i played i play guitar as well and much more so now i've been playing a lot more in the past five five to ten years but bass i've now been playing bass for about 30 years uh 32 years actually um so that's really where i started that's where music started for me like as playing as an instrumentalist playing in bands um and it was a long path that led me to the kind of stuff that I do now, you know, working mostly in dance music, um, in disco and house and stuff like that. Um, and I could talk about that if you want, but, uh, sure, but yeah, that's... we want to no, We want to hear, we want to hear about that. So okay. before even going any further, the bass stuff that you started playing, cause yeah. I'm going to guess you got the harky set up or something <laughs> like that, like a star. I, um, I had a, a, I had a Yamaha BB 300 bass right. and a PV basic 50 amp. I wish I still had that bass. As a matter of fact, I've been, I've like looked every now and then I, I get, I get nostalgic and I look and I can buy that bass for really cheap, but I just, I don't have space right now. I got, I, you know, you can see I have a very small studio. I've got about 10 guitars and basses already. And I just, I can't really justify it, but, but yeah, but that was a cool bass actually. So when you started playing with this so-called band as kids, what would you, yeah. What we what yeah, was so the I mean, heroes of the day? What we like, what I, are we I think about? so called is a very appropriate uh you know word to describe. We call it pseudo band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean we were we were you know, it was me and a couple of friends making noise in my mom's basement, basically. But um we were playing at that time, I mean we were into like metal and classic rock and stuff like that. Uh the first concert I ever went to was a Metallica concert in nineteen eighty nine. And um, I was in, you know, from 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 heavy metal and stuff like that. I kind of got more into classic rock, and from classic rock, I got into other music of the '70s. Started getting into funk, like like Sly Stone and um, and Parliament and and things like that. And that was kind of my tr transition into more groove oriented music. Um, uh, concurrently, I started also getting exposed to jazz through uh, a music teacher in high school that was a big um influence for me in my in my musical path and um and so i took that and, and in so in high school i was playing music that was kind of like funky funky kind of jazzy sort of groovy music um then i went to school i went to oberlin college uh and studied well i got an english degree but also studied a lot of music basically did like a jazz performance minor um playing bass at the time I was playing upright bass and um, just really focused almost exclusively on jazz in that period of time. And then I, I, I graduated college in 98, spent a year in Cleveland, was coming back to New York, fully thinking that I was coming back to be a jazz musician. Like that's what I was going to do. I was going to be a jazz musician. 
And I got back to New York and within like literally like a month or two realized that was not what I was going to do, <laughs> that I was not feeling the jazz scene in New York. It was super, super competitive and like, you know, playing gigs to just like a room full of other really critical jazz musicians was not what I wanted to be doing with my musical life. And I ended up um, playing with this band Topaz because of a friend of mine who played bass and I ended up, sub I was subbing for him. And the members of Topaz were, uh, the sax player, his name is Topaz. Um, and two of the other members in that group were Ethan White and Christian Yurek um, on keys and drums, who, and we eventually split off and started Tortured Soul um, in the early 2000s. So that was, that was like Tortured Soul, man. Yeah, Tortured Soul, yeah. See, that's what I'm saying. That's how the story, you come back from college. <laughs> dealing with musical notation training dealing with all the stuff to make you this great jazz musician and what the hell happens you take everything and throw it right in the trash basket and yeah start and playing two bar loops again you know like that's i'm back to just doing riffs again it's like yo what did i do all this learning for what was all that about i know some of my professors would be rolling over in their graves right damn now damn right damn right say so, hey listen it's the same with me i'm classically trained and here i am playing bum, 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 bum. <laughs> it is what it is you know that's how that's how uh commercial music is made since the 70s but it's well, got r&b yeah. and jazz roots to it I, I i think i just i sort of realized that as much as i loved the the challenge and the learning of of jazz and and just the, the difficulty of it. And I still love jazz. I listen, listen to jazz all the time. Um, but I think that I realized that like for me, for a performance, a live thing, I, I wanted music that was more interactive where people really, where people danced, where people got up and moved around and really expressed themselves. And I think there probably was a time when jazz was that music, you know, but it's many, many decades ago. And, um, yeah, so I just, I, I landed back in here and that's really what led me, you know, from, from Topaz to Tortured Soul and all the, 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 the touring and the type of gigs that I was doing with Tortured Soul is what opened up the world of dance music to me. So how did you get the gigs and all the, like we, like we talked to my friends like D-Train them, they had the Chitlin circuit when they were coming up. You yeah. Know, everybody knows what that means. It's like, you know, yep. back end rooms that you play along the way. Yeah. What was yeah. it like for Tortured Soul? What was involved with making that, you know, trying to make it famous, basically? Is that that's the yeah. dream of all everybody with their band. Let's make this band into the next, you know, yeah, whatever. So you know, Tortured whatever. Soul, I mean, we, um, you know, we we had a couple records out, like the, the early stuff on Central Park, uh, like Might Do Something Wrong and Fall in Love and How's Your Life. Um, Central Park was the was one of the labels that was run by Sat. Yeah, I'm telling you this, you know, but I'm. I'm but no, you tell the people. I, they don't know. Yeah. Right. So, so Central Park Records was one of the labels that was owned by Satellite Records, which was a big record store in New York City, and that was kind of like their deep house imprint. And and that style of music at the time was was huge. I mean, obviously, deep house is still very big, but and it's having a big moment again, I think. But but right then, it was it was really really big and. Um, so we had a couple records that had been successful, uh, but nobody, you know, that was, that was, that was obviously DJ music. It was released on vinyl um, at the time. That's all that anybody was playing. There was no, there weren't even CDJs yet, really, I don't think. And um, 
you know, we we decided that we wanted to do that, take this concept of the music, but perform it live. We were live musicians. And so we literally packed our stuff into a van. We bought a red Dodge Ram van with a little bit of borrowed money from, from our parents, bought a van. And Ethan, uh, the keyboard player, Ethan White, um, at the time, he just got, I mean, I want to say he went online. He, there was barely even online at the time. We're talking about 2001, you know? Yeah, he there was really out. no no websites yet. No, there no, was he, no, it was, if I remember correctly, it was just the infancy of MySpace at that time, yeah, just yeah. starting. I mean, he just through calling and networking, basically booked us out like a tour, which took us across the top of, of the US. We, we started out, we went out, we went to like Cleveland, Chicago, then out through the Dakotas. We played out, I mean, we played, basically we, we went in a circle all the way around the country um, and played maybe about 25 shows in maybe like five weeks in the van, just the three of us bringing all of our equipment with us mostly playing in venues that never had live bands because they were it was dj oriented music the only place where our name had any cachet was in clubs so we would be in clubs that didn't even have a live sound system bringing all our own stuff trying to plug into like route everything through the dj mixer setting up and you know i mean we 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 did it we were able to get by just on the sheer like energy that we were putting into the music because the sound was a mess everything was a generally kind of a disaster but i mean though and we did that actually a couple times like those big long tours where we traveled in the van and that i think was really what started to build the whole thing for us um and from there you know we we ended up after that period we and actually there's some of that stuff like you can find like like 2003 2004 we played the movement festival and i think we were the only live band to play that year um and that stuff's like online you can find you can dig it up like tortured soul at movement from 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 you can see uh see what what we were all about actually my hair this is the first time my hair has been this long since that time it just got long in lockdown but like yeah i'm i'm, I'm on my throwback hair right now but I, uh, but yeah, like it, that was a, it was an amazing time. We just, but that was like just sheer like will and like, you know, f grunt labor, like just road dogging it out around the country. In a so band. for the Tortured Soul Band, what was the process of you guys sitting down and writing these songs? Like, how did that, what was the pecking order in that way? Yeah. So, I mean, most, Tortured Soul was really started as Christian's project and he was the primary songwriter. It was, um, you know, in terms of the actual songs, the songwriting content, that's primarily Christian. So he, he wrote the, the kind of skeleton of the music, but then in terms of the way that we uh, produced it and arranged it and performed it, that was really a collective effort. And like the sound that we had as a group was very much the three of us. Yeah, yeah, because there was really no real bands like that around no. to even look at and say, oh, we want to be like, you know, to kind of have a go-to or muse it by. So you you basically were just going what you thought people wanted to hear or whatever was being I mean, like, in your mind. Yeah, we just liked this sort of idea. And we would, you know, when, when we would play, I don't know if anybody watching ever saw us play, and, or, and the Torture Soul still plays, by the way. I mean, obviously, I, I haven't been in the group for about 10 years now and Ethan passed away uh five years ago 
uh, but Christian continues the project with other members. But when, when you see a Tortured Soul set, it's like a DJ set. It's continuous from beginning to end. And that was a concept that I think really uh, excited us, you know, doing something that, that had that kind of continuous nonstop energy of a DJ set, but doing it, performing it live. Yeah. <laughs> so where does this now come to the halt for you with Tortured Soul? Give us the timeline on that now. Yeah, so um, at, in about, in 2010, or around 2010, I um, was sort of getting a little burnt out on some of the touring that we were doing and feeling feeling like um, artistically, I kind of wanted to try to do my own thing a bit more. You know, uh, I love Tortured Soul. I love working with the guys. But as I said, it was always Christian's project. And, um, you know, in any in any band or group dynamic, there's a lot of uh, compromising and it's, you know, it's a democracy. So, you know, music gets made by a lot of pushing and pulling. And, you know, I think at that time, I, I just felt like I, I had some things that I wanted to do and wanted to try to build something for myself. And it was a really hard decision for me to to step away from it. But um, I, that's that's about the time that I left. And um, at, at that time, I started uh, this Deep in Disco label or project, whatever it was, which now kind of has sort of faded away. But it really was kind of the birth of me you know, venturing out as Jay Criv and, and doing music of my own uh, that was completely my own. Um, but let me just interject for a second. In 2010, Deep House and house music that we know and the disco sound went very underground because mm -hmm. this new sound that Danny, uh, Danny, that David Guetta was coming up with the more EDM-ish, mm -hmm. bigger sounding records, electro became the music of Europe. Yeah. And also was starting to come over here. Yeah. In a very big way on the radio. So how are you handling that change going on around you and you're still locked into wanting to do what you do? Yeah. I mean I think at the time I was a little bit in my own world uh with what I was what what I was interested in. I, also at that time in concurrently with what you're talking about i think that there started to build this kind of underground but but very kind of interesting new wave of people making disco edits and stuff like that and it was happening on soundcloud there was a kind of a community of people that started you know and there was other labels at the time that were that were putting these sort of revamped disco reworks and edits out and that's kind of what I was pulled towards at that time. I was making a lot of edits, making a lot of reworks, you know, things that were, you know, in some cases very not not so different than like what house music has always done, you know, in terms of sampling, but but a little bit more focused on the essence of the the disco element of it. And um, I was, you know, I was doing a lot of that stuff. I was putting it out on SoundCloud, meeting a lot of people. I met. Um, my good friend and now label partner Aaron Day at that time, um, and we started to kind of hang and 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 play music together, DJ together. I was also just starting to DJ at the time too. So oh, I had, I, yeah, I mean, I had turntables 
from like 2003, 2004, but it was not, you know, they kind of sat in my room. I, I would get up and play, mess around. But I, but in 2010, when I quit Tortured Soul is when I really started to focus more seriously on that as well. So I was learning, like really getting serious about DJing, doing some, some, a lot of production on my own, building a little network and community of people through SoundCloud that um, were kind of doing like-minded stuff and starting to think about, um, uh, I actually was also, soon after I stopped playing with Tortured Soul, I ended up playing with Escort. Um, I didn't have any gigs, any live gigs, and I was asked to, to play. I, I kind of was like not looking to join another band at the time, but Escort wasn't traveling. And I was like, all right, if it's just in New York, that's cool. And Escort, you know, doing lots of, doing some really cool stuff. And it was in some ways more aligned with what I wanted to be doing at the time. And then around 2011, Aaron and I started Razor and Tape. Um, and then sort of that became a whole new trajectory for me in music. Mm. The thought behind Razor and Tape, just as what was it kind of like, let's fool around or let's take this serious? It was definitely not. You know what I mean? I, a good question, right? Let's. Is it the seriousness or do we just like, let's throw some stuff out there and see how it sticks to the wall? Very much the latter. I mean, you know, we, I had been making edits, like I mentioned, and just sort of giving them away on SoundCloud and trying to build a little following through that. Aaron had, Aaron, who's originally from Brooklyn, but had lived in Philly and Chicago, had just moved back to New York. He had worked with lots of different people. He was doing parties in Miami and other places and, and through his parties had some edits that like, you know, personal edits that DJs had given him that had never been released. And like some of the early stuff, like the Lovebirds uh, Erotic City one and like the Ron Bass Jam stuff. And it was kind of like, you know, I've got these things. And I was like, well, I have a bunch of these that I haven't released yet. Maybe we can just like make a little white label record label and put some of this stuff out. I mean, and obviously they're bootlegs, you know. So, so, so now let's break it down for people that don't know how a record label works. Sure. I like to make it real kindergarten easy because you got to make you got to make an investment here. Tell people about that. Yeah. What's so, involved? Give us the you know the breakdown of you guys yeah. saying we're gonna throw do this. Now what goes? What happens? So I mean, you gotta. Well, first of all, you gotta sort of like have I think have a feel for something that's gonna be people are gonna want because you do need to put some money up. You have to, especially if you're pressing vinyl, you need to put up all the cost of the the pressing and. You need to figure out distribution. You need to figure out, all right, is this going to be vinyl only? Is this going to go digital? If it's going to go digital, at that time, uh, I mean, we were basically, we had direct relationships with, we established direct relationships with all the big dance music sites. So we had Juno and TrackSource and Beatport, and uh, there might have been even a couple other ones at the time that aren't happening anymore. But like, you know, it, it it's... I, we sort of started it on a whim. We really did. And we never thought, I don't think either of us would have thought that we would still be, you know, doing this seven, eight years later with like, uh, actually about close to a hundred releases at this point between uh, the original razor and tape and the sub imprints that we have too. But yeah, I mean, it's like, you gotta like, you know, I don't think either of us, well, Aaron had run a label before. Aaron had day recordings. So he had a little bit of experience. I had done Deep in Disco, but that was barely a label, you know, and I had only started it a year before. Um, but 
We were fortunate to work out um, work out uh, to get to get together with a uh, Prime Direct Distribution, who has been our distributor uh, since then and now, and we've got a great relationship with them, and they do a great job getting our records into all the stores around. And um, you know, from what started as just like, okay, we've got these bootleg edits, let's just throw them out white label style with a stamp on them, no real info, try to keep it, you know just low key and just, just for the love and just get the music out there to, to be played by people. And cause we like we like playing this stuff. We know there's some other people who want to play it. Let's just get it out. It's gone from that to now we really, you know, we've got a lot of releases under our belt and um, we've started to, we put out all different types of stuff, not just that like disco edit stuff. We've done straight up house stuff. We've done a lot of original music and we're, and that's really the path that we're trying to go towards now. Um, and leaving the bootleg edit stuff behind. Um, we feel like it's the right time to be doing that. And we're really excited about some of the original music that we have coming up. So do you enjoy reforming into the remixing aspects of your life? Do you enjoy more the writing aspects of writing a song from scratch and going seeing this thing from an embryo all the way to delivery? Or would you rather sit down and take someone else's project and make it your infusion to what you think it should sound like yeah i mean i think ultimately making your own music is the most gratifying thing you know realizing something from the beginning to completion and and all those steps along the way and you know just sort of chipping away at it until it's exactly what you i'm, I'm not sure it's ever exactly what i want i, I don't know that's about okay you, yeah it's like sometimes it it's it's hard to ever feel completely satisfied but i think but but I think that's the most gratifying thing is having a piece of music that's really, that's new and unique. And, you know, in this, in this day and age, there's been so much, especially in our world of music, there's so much sampling, there's so much rehashing of older things. I think it's really important to, for some people to make some new music, you know, there's gotta be some new classics that are going to be fodder for other generations. And that is the most gratifying thing to me. That said, I really enjoy remixing. Um, I think it's uh, that's a fun little challenge, a different kind of puzzle, you know, than 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 writing your own writing your own music. Um, it's worked. I think it works well for me when there's a balance of both. Um, the the remix. I think it's it's just the way that it's easier to get started when you're using like a sample of something. You start with some vibe that's already there, and you just you know you just decorate it kind of. Um, sampling and remixing are the same in that way, you know. It's a little bit easier of a process, I think. Uh, although sometimes, you know, you, you you try you can try so many things on a remix and try so many different directions that by the time you're done, you don't even know what you're doing anymore. You know, like you need some somebody else's ears to tell you, like, is, is this even good? Like, does this sound right? So this like, is this is where I start to lend the question now because this happened yeah. to me many yeah. times over my career. You've done a remix because we didn't go before production because production, when you do them, they're from your heart. This is what your vision is. But for a remixer, you think you did the greatest job of all time. You know the record feels right. Yeah. You send it back over to them and you get a knockback. What do you do? <sighs> yeah. That's Did that free that pause? <sighs> go ahead. Tell us. So for me, one thing that I've learned, um, you know, in my 20 years or so in, in music industry 
is you got to have kind of a thick skin for sure. And I think, you know, especially these, these things, this is just part of making music is that, and you know, I, I can see it from the other side too, because I run a label, you know, and you do too. So you, you know how that is. Sometimes, sometimes you do something that you think is fantastic or you think is really interesting, but maybe that person wanted something different from you. Maybe they wanted, they, maybe when they asked you to remix it, they were thinking of this one track that they loved and they liked this one thing about it. And you, and they're like, that's what they were hoping for. They wanted you to recreate this other thing of yours that you, that they loved, but you don't want to just keep recreating the same crap, you know, that you do. You want to, you always want to try, you always want to push and try different things. But that's true because the application may not call for that sound. Right. When you're, when you're, it may not work. Yeah, I've had it a million times. But what I have learned is that I think, you know, in those situations, you 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 take a deep breath and you sleep on it and you come back and try to try to start fresh, you know, and try and and realize that like, you know, there's a million ways to skin a cat. And like maybe and what I the, the silver lining usually for me, and I'm sure for you too, Lenny, is like on one of those tracks, if you thought that if you thought it was fire and they didn't like it, well, you can always strip off the parts that aren't yours and take that and make it something else. I mean, I actually, Vertigo, a track of mine, began, or some of the building blocks of that track were for a remix that was turned down, um, that, 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 that they didn't like, and I'm not gonna say anything about who or what or when or where it was. Okay, but, so I'm gonna ask again, I'm gonna ask the question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but that became, you know that became my own track and like I, I I took off all the parts that weren't mine and said you know what I this is a good foundation for something else and I wrote something else to it and that is like that's the that's the best possible scenario right when you when the work that you put into something doesn't go to waste becomes something worthwhile that gets seen to completion but yeah it's tough man it's like you know all right so now here's a, here's a good question for you. You know, I heard you mention the word turntables, DJ, 2010, <laughs> college, jazz, all this great, wonderful stuff. <laughs> you were in a nightclub scene. You were hearing a ton of DJs as you were with Tortured Soul. What were you picking yeah. up along the way? What was making this thing about DJing become a reality? Who was yeah. it? Something must have happened. You said, I have to do this. Yeah, I, I think that um, some of my some of my greatest experiences with with tortured soul were at um events like um like southport weekender in the uk where we played a number of times and just really got exposed and and really from the beginning it was it was eye-opening that there was this whole culture kind of that that we you know we were making dance music but we were not so immersed in the culture before we started traveling as a band and touring as a band. Um, and just just the culture of dance music and sort of understanding, you know, I was very focused pr previously, as I told you, you know, studying jazz on that sort of historical uh, transit trajectory from from its early roots. And, and, and I loved I loved feeling part of that sort of history, that that progression and realizing that that house music and disco and that that was its own separate strand or separate branch of, of a similar tree. And, um, and in some ways it was really much more aligned with, with what I love musically and, and who I am in terms of my musical identity. 
and it kind of opened me up being, you know, being around it, um, being immersed in it through the gigs that we were doing. Um, yeah, it really, it really changed my, it was a huge turning point for me musically. Um, and, and understanding more, you know, I think, you know, especially as like a kid into rock, you know, like when I would even see, like, I remember watching like videos of like any electronic group. I remember seeing like Depeche Mode videos, you know, on, the, on, on MTV and being like, watching them like playing and be like, they're not playing. Like, I don't, that's just electronics. Like, that's just, that's just machines, you know, and understanding that like, well, yeah, someone's got to program those machines, you know, like someone's got to play the record. Someone's got to choose the record that comes next. Someone's got to blend it in a way that keeps the energy. That whole um, awakening was, was, was powerful for me. And, um, you know, I think, you know, Where seeing, was that synergy? Where did that synergy happen? Because everybody has that moment where things change. One second. Yeah. Oh, shit, I'm going to do it this way now. Damn it, I got to go yeah. back and... Yeah, I mean, I, I do remember, I do remember, like, um, there was one, one, one Southport weekend, there might have been 2004 or five, where um, just watching, um, I mean, there was a ton of great DJs that weekend, but, but, um, but specifically Carrie Chandler, just uh, watching Carrie Chandler play, and he was playing keys too, so that, like, drew me in a bit, you know, as an instrumentalist, and, and, just seeing like the way the whole thing developed and built and the kind of like the way he just sort of kept like the sonics of the whole thing really like it all just like made sense from beginning to end you know and i remember feeling like yeah like wow like it blew me blew me away and realizing that that wow there's really there's really an art form to this and it's something that i wanted to explore more yeah let me share something with everybody. I know that Kerry Chandler guy since he was 19 years <laughs> old. <laughs> I was in the basement when he had his sampler. And I've, I've told this story before, but I've had to, I was in his basement in the real estate agency where they had this thing called Three Generations. These two older men and him, they had this group called Three Generations. And I remember going downstairs, he's like, look, dude, Camacho and I went, he may he rest in peace, and he played me the samples on the keyboard. And it was uh 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 on all those records he did drink on me. He was showing me, and I was sitting there just in total awe. And this was in East Orange, New Jersey. <coughs> so Kerry Chan is a very brilliant person. I'm trying to get him on here, but his manager won't let him do anything until the end of the year after his album's coming out. So we're gonna get him on hopefully soon. Yeah. But it's funny you mentioned Kerry Chandler. He's a great guy, fantastic talent. He's been around. His father was an, an, a main DJ too, Joe Chandler. Oh, really? In Jersey. Joe mm -hmm. Chandler was well-known, yeah. So he comes from good musical stock, you know? He made yeah. his father proud. He made a lot of people from Jersey proud. I'll tell you that. Kerry Chandler's a great guy. But yeah. back to you. This is not the this is not the Kerry Chandler story. But I like to always share little tidbits with everybody. Oh, no, thank you. Yeah, I mean, and he was. We met him that that year too, and he was super cool to us too. Super sweet dude. Yeah. When you talk about Southport, what's that mess like going there? Oh man. I mean, mess. It's a mess. Always in there. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's really a trip. I mean, it's in just like, you know, you know where they hold it. It's like, 
in those weird like like family summer camp things that are just like <laughs> just just kind of amazing we don't i don't know if we have anything that's exactly like that here in the u.s maybe like the closest thing would be like one of those like weird cat skills like yeah, in Rome, new york in yeah. Rome, new york or something right yeah now. but it's like it's like a weird place but but somehow it just gets it just gets taken over by like just the most most lunatic diehard you know house heads basically for the for the weekend and um the weather's garbage it's always garbage it's like you're right on the on the british coast it's like you know pissing sideways rain you the whole time but no one cares it's just like and you know it's just a party it's and and just really it's not even like i mean people are definitely raging you know in in many different ways but it really is about the music it's like and the, and the lineups are unreal it's yeah into stuff. totally well you know what i always said if we didn't have the uk to support this music it never would have came yeah. to be what it became it never would have happened never yeah. because um not only does the English clubber want to listen to the music, but they want to know everything about what you do. Mm. Everything. I mean, they're diehards in every way. They know everything. I used to go into clubs in the beginning of the 90s, and they would know every record I did and everything I touched. It was crazy. Every club I played, it was like, I don't yeah. even remember that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So let's talk about some of you. I want to ask that moment more about the Vertigo project. Sure. So you did. So you you said about the remix that you stripped it back. What went into this record? Did you bring yeah. in live instrumentation? Was there a lot of stuff that went on? You know, get people the in depth of what your world yeah. was like doing this. So I mean, I I kind of like when I when I when I started with. When I started at the beginning, I kind of, um, I think I just had sort of the groove, like the drum groove, which is a very, it was samples, but it very live sounding kind of drum, drum groove. I, 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 a lot of my stuff, uh, especially in the drum production, I, I go for a sound that is, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds that I build and program, but I, I, I want it to sound kind of organic. You know, and, and it's something like that. It's obviously like I'm going for a more disco-y than a housey sound with it. So I think I just kind of had, I think I had the drums stripped down and had this, um, had this uh, basically like walking bass line kind of thing, you know, the octave, that thing that goes throughout. Pedaling the bass. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I had that going and, um, you know, I, I think once once i got to the part where i was able to you know have uh, it builds a lot of tension you know for the first part of the song and then and then sort of explodes on the chorus kind of you know and i remember i sort of had this sort of transitional thing and i knew that that's where it was going to go and i had sort of written written a sort of guideline for what i was thinking about with with the melody and um adeline who is uh great friend of mine great has been a great musical partner of mine for for many years she was the singer in escort um oh, yeah, she's french right she's french originally french but she's lived in new york for about 15 years now right because somebody else mentioned to me that they worked with her as well mm -hmm. mark some yeah mark did yeah yes mark i uh, mark i think did a did a remix or something for her recently. yes he mentioned yes her yeah. in brooklyn i'm like he, he asked me did you ever hear of her and I, I don't know her i know her voice yeah 
Yeah, know. so Adeline's doing her own thing now. She's doing a little bit more on the R&B tip, but uh, really great singer, great musician in her own right, great songwriter. She's a great bass player, too. Um, but we, we were in here, and, um, you know, I, I was telling you earlier, Lenny, that, like, you know, I re basically record pretty much everything that can be recorded in this room, I do in this room. So, you know, we had the, we had the, the mic set up, and we, we just started vibing on it. And we got that, you know, we basically, when, when we had that note that she hits, like at the, at the chorus, and, ah, right? Like that was when like the track, like, like completely came together. We're like, all right, it's going to be around that. And then I kind of wrote out the lyrics and got the vertigo concept and something about the, the, the sort of like, there was a, there's like an arpeggiated synth in there that kind of gave me this kind of like spinning around sort of like like almost dizzy sort of feeling and that's where like the vertigo idea came from and we kind of wrote the song around that uh but you know it, it it takes and then from there it's like you've got the general idea and then that's the easy part the hard work work is then getting it to completion just sort of chipping away and like you know figuring out where all the different parts fit the mix and everything like that but um I played it for I played it for Glitterbox uh, originally, and they turned it down. Um, no, I'm not surprised. Yeah, but um, I'm just I'm just messing with them because obviously we work we're working together on a lot of stuff now. But but Dave Dave Lee, the artist formerly known as Joey Negro, uh, really did liked he, it. Did he drop Did he drop the Joey Negro completely? He did. Yeah, he did. Um, but um, he he was really supportive. He heard it and he was like, "This is a great song." And he 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 offered to put it out and did a fantastic remix of his own on it. Um, yeah. So you know, on that one, I I don't think I I think I played all the instruments on that one. It didn't really require uh, any additional. I, so I played bass. I played guitar. I played the keys on it. Um, I think that maybe I maybe I recorded some some live covers on it, but uh, but other than that, everything is is I, I programmed, recorded bass, guitar, right in here, keys. Yeah, it all happened in this room, basically. Wow, the magic room. The room in my Brooklyn apartment. The magic room. We got a mini move. Like I was telling you before, we see the Wurlitzer. Yeah. What do we got up here? I'm gonna try to turn this. In. Look, everybody, so, let's go. Rich and famous, yeah. caviar dream. Yeah, I know, I know. So this is what we have: the Wurlitzer, the the. This is normally sometimes has some other crap in it, but <laughs> uh, the Moog and then the Juno, and those are my main. Those are, are really my main. 106 up there. Yeah, it's the Let's 106. That's kind of like those are my go-to's. Sitting up up top here, the things that are not getting used as much anymore, MPC? like like the MPC and the 707. Um, and then over here, actually, this is my favorite area because this is this is the effects land. So I have an Eventide uh, Space Echo Moog uh, Moog delay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can't really turn the camera around to show you the other stuff that's facing this way. That's but, all right. Yeah, it's okay. And your and your door of choice. Where you do your weaponry? I, I work in Logic. I work in Logic. I mean, sometimes I use Ableton to get a creative start on things, but the minute that I have to start thinking about mix stuff, I need to move into Logic. So as a producer, artist, lyricist, um, guitarist, bass guitarist, the whole deal, you're already thinking about mixing as you're in the middle of 
writing, right? I am. And you know what? It's something that I, I, I actually am trying to train myself to not think about the mix as much as I'm writing. Um, especially right now, I've been, I've been writing a lot of original music. Um, I'm trying to pull together uh, what, I, what I guess is going to be like a producer record um, with a bunch of different features. And I'm really focusing on songwriting, um, like writing songs. And um, it's so hard for me to not to not think about mix, you know, like I'm constantly, you know, uh, imagining the way I want it to sound ultimately and trying to get it there. But that is a very different um, that's a very different process than than the actual creative songwriting process. And sometimes they overlap a bit, but it's, I, I, you know, it's a hard thing for me to to really to, to not not get in, not go down that rabbit hole when I want to be focusing on the creative side of things. I don't know about you, but like, I'm always thinking about the mix and you know, it's, you have, it's good, but like. It's really more about getting the sounds right. Right. Just like when you're sitting with a band, if you were to sit down with a band, it's about everyone getting their tuning right. Am I right or wrong? Right. Yeah, no, you're right. It's about the sounds in. mm -hmm. Yeah getting the right sounds from the beginning that will ultimately makes make the mix easier at the end yeah. right because if you got crap sounds what goes in crappy is going to sound golden crappy later yeah for sure because a lot of people don't understand you know i get i know you get a lot of demos i do too and i hear stuff and i'm just like no <laughs> no yeah and they think it's great and 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 with every right i tell everyone you did it of course you would think it's great but commercially speaking it's not even good right and how do you break it to someone that when it's not good you know it's tough yeah i mean what i find is that i hear a lot of music that in terms of production quality actually sounds pretty good these days you know like it's there's a lot of people out there who seem to have sort of technical skill engineering skill almost you know getting making a record sound big and full and and crisp and polished but the content is not really that happening you know what i mean like that's that's what i find a lot especially in the demos that i listen to or things that i hear you know i'm i'm always searching for you know like some of the records that i love the most are, are not necessarily the best mixed record. They always have like some wonky bits, like something that pops out or some really strange kind of strange choices. But, you know, it's those kind of things that, that actually make for good music, like the idiosyncrasies and, or just the actual ideas that go into it. Not, not what happens, not the shine that you put on it at the end, you know? Well, dude, you could turtle wax a, a good turd. And yeah. it's a tiny piece of turd, you know, I always say. Or you can have, where I remember in the medium house music, the records coming out of Chicago sounded terrible. Yeah. Not only it wasn't really the, the way the records were made, it was even the pressing was bad. Oh, yeah. But yeah. Yet, we played them. Yeah. We knew they sounded bad, but we didn't care. We loved the, we loved the content on the record. Exactly. Not, That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, people have to understand how important it is. It's like, get get the craft right. Mm-hmm. If you were sitting down with some of these people, what would you tell them? You know, they came to you with their projects. How do you, what do you break to them? What do you say to them? Go yeah. away. 
your shit sucks. What do you do? What do you say to them? You know? No, I know. That's why I end up not listening at all. <laughs> oh, I how important is it for you as a producer, forget about being the DJ, to not only have Razor and Tape and all your personal record labels, but how important is it to you to work with other record labels with your social media side and everything? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I it's crazy how like we all have to wear so many hats these days, right? You got to be, you got to be a producer, an engineer, a songwriter, a mix engineer, a mastering engineer, and then you have to be your own whole publicity director as well. You know, it's it's a lot. But I would say that I think that um, you know, some some of the relationships that I have, like like it's been it's been really great working with Glitterbox and Defected. They've been um very supportive and they uh very encouraging and 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 it's really nice to kind of have someone in your corner who can who has some weight who can help connect you with other musicians other singers and other people that you might want to collaborate with um that's been really nice uh actually Seamus who you spoke to a couple weeks ago is 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 my A&R contact at at Glitterbox Defected so he and I talk all the time and we're we're in kind of in constant contact I've got a lot of projects that I'm juggling right now for them, which we can talk about uh, if you're interested. And um, yeah, sure, well, we, this is all about you, dude. Yeah, you tell us about uh, your little box experience. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I put out the single last summer, "Yo Love," which also featured Adeline, um, which was kind of like a, a almost like a, a mid-tempo roller disco style track, um, which did did all right, and um, you know, but from there. I built a relationship with them and I've done a bunch of remixes since then. Um, I remixed uh, the Freeform Five featuring Carolyn Harding, Strength track, which is an old track of theirs, beautiful track with crazy, crazy arrangements, live strings and huge, huge, big production. Um, uh, I did a, a couple other remixes and, and I'm working on, um, I'm working, I worked a little bit on the Horse Meat Disco record that came out. I, um, played guitar and bass and wrote horn and string arrangements on Jump Into the Light, which featured Kathy Sledge from Sister Sledge, which was really cool. And um, did some other stuff, did some vocal recording and production so, on some other songs. Let me ask you, what, what's the mindset with these? I'm hearing these records coming out of Glitterbox. Hmm. They're kind of mid-tempo-ish. They're not the typical quote-unquote big tracks what's yeah. going on with this they're coming to you what's what's this, what's their mindset right now i think that i think that they are i think that in a way Glitterbox. i mean obviously they want to be successful with everything they're doing but i think in a way Glitterbox is a bit of a passion project where they feel like they can just they really put out music they like you know they're not they're not thinking so much about whether or not it will be the banger hit of the year. Um, I think they've had a few of those tracks that help carry the whole thing, you know, like, like some of the, some of the artists seem to consistently really put out some big stuff like they, you know, shapeshifters or some of the stuff they've released from like Mike Dunn and, um, and uh, you know, they had purple disco machine stuff. Like some of those artists really always consistently deliver big, big tracks. But I think that, I think that Simon's idea is that it's time for, for the, the world of music to get, I think they really, they're focused on original music and they want songs too. 
I mean, there's been some big ones like, like, you know, the vision heaven and stuff like that. Big, big tracks. Um, Shapeshifters had, had a couple that have been pretty huge as well. Um, but I think the idea is like, like, you know, yeah, like, like invest in like new original music. And it's not always about, is it going to be, you know, dance floor destruction? It's, it's about, you know, like quality, quality stuff. I think that's what they're trying to do. I appreciate that because that's kind of where I'm coming from as well. Uh, what I, what I'm trying to do. And I'm not always the kind of producer that makes like, you know, huge, big banger hits. Um, you know, I'm, I, I, I have a hard time getting away from like my jazzy musical past sometimes, which doesn't always translate into, um, you know, the real simple focused, effective kind of dance floor stuff. But, um, but I'm, I'm excited about the stuff that I'm doing for them. Uh, and I'm excited, like I'm working with Damis Brown, uh, another one of their artists. Um, we have a new version of uh, the classic D-Train track, uh, You're the One for Me, that that we're doing. Sort of reboot of that one, which is going to be great. They sound fantastic on it. Um, and then an original track of mine that they're singing on. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, it's hard for me to say exactly, but I, I, I will say that they're real supportive of new original music, and I appreciate that. You know, that's good. Yeah. Did you notice your life changed when you, you know, I'm talking about your DJing and musical career change when you were associated with Glitterbox? Yeah, it definitely felt like a level up for sure. You know, um, it, it's definitely helped. I think it's helped my profile. Um, but you know, I'm not. I'm just doing what I'm doing. You know, and and like I'm not. I'm not like bound to only release with them or anything. I can kind of, I can kind of, uh, you know, do whatever I want. And, um, and I, and they're, I, I appreciate that they're cool about that too. You know, they're not real, like, like protective or proprietary about that in any way. Um, you know, I hope to do a follow up to vertigo on, on Z records, Z records, as they call it in the UK, uh, with Dave. Um, I have, I just finished uh, a remix, a new remix for, for Dave for NAC Soul Symphony remix um, that he's going to release, uh, I guess, sometime next year. Um, yeah. I was happy when I heard your mix of um, DC LaRue's track, Cathedrals, which I, oh, know, I know Glitterbox has picked up as well. Yeah. And we were talking about that before we started tonight, tonight's broadcast. Um, Yours a bit more dubby-ish, I remember, yeah. than being from the original Cathedrals. For sure. Yeah, it's a dub, um, but I had a lot of fun with that one. I mean, Dave's kind of specifically asked me to do a dub. That's what he sort of was looking for to round out the remix package that he had, that he was developing with, um, I think there were some other nice mixes. I think Fulhamore did one, and um, there's a few other nice ones. But uh, that was a lot of fun. It's, so, it's always so cool when you get, like, you know, a track like that, which you've heard a million times, and then you've got like the stems, the, the the splits up on your computer, and you can just like zero in on those little things. Just that, that's that's just a trip, you know. It's, it's super exciting. I had a lot of fun with that one. Yeah, you sounded it sounded like you had a good time. I mean, it worked really well. I mean, of course, we all love the original, you know, the original vocal version. Yeah, of course. Dave Dave gave it a a, a polish, you know, very updated. Yeah. Things that you never got to hear in your visual pressing, you now heard it in his mix. Yeah, yeah. He always he's so good with that. Like and he's a great remixer. There's no doubt. 
He's a great producer, great remixer. And again, you know, I've had the pleasure working with him as well. Um, he's remixed stuff of mine many, many years yeah. ago. No, I, yeah. Good guy. He is a good funny. guy. Huh? Yeah, yeah, he's great. <laughs> he could be a bit funny and off color at times. You're like, huh? <laughs> yeah. It's all right. It's all good. Yeah, yeah you got to, you got to, you got to know, you got to know who you're dealing with. Cause like, you know, sometimes he'll hit you with that text where you're just like, you're like, oh, it's Dave. It's all right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, whoa, okay. Um, you know, everybody has their road, you know, and we're now, here we are, you were DJing, traveling, you were playing. I'm assuming you played in Brooklyn a lot since you lived over there. You played yeah. in some of the clubs, okay? Because uh, if I wasn't in the UK, I was playing Manhattan. Up until right. the, in fact, I was my last gig was supposed to be Birdcage, and that got canceled when they closed New York. Yeah, my but last here one. Here we was, are. The phone call my last one was going to be a uh, House of Yes on March thirteenth. It was a Glitterbox night, actually. Yes, there you go. Yeah. They, I, and I was actually Sunday to play at Birdcage on that same weekend, and they shut everything down. What are we doing now with pandemic? Besides, besides drinking coffee and dreaming about what life is going to be after this ends, what are we well, doing? We're not just drinking coffee, Lenny. We're drinking <laughs> okay, so we're pouring some other stuff, <laughs> stimulus, stimulation, stimulants to keep ourselves happy. But let's be honest. Okay, so when you're not drinking coffee, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so at the very beginning, I did a few Zoom things, uh, Zoom kind of party things got kind of burnt out on that early you know that's a weird it was fun and everybody needed it but i think it's like you know for me just having that feeling of like that that you know that feeling after you just finished a set and you're all hyped up but instead you're just alone in your apartment and you like close the computer and you're like it's all quiet i like that feeling was too too weird for me honestly like and the whole thing of just like not feeling really feeling the connectedness I don't know. I kind of got over the Zoom party thing pretty quickly. Um, so I have not really, I mean, I, I've played a couple things that could be sort of considered gigs a couple weekends ago uh, up at the Glen Falls house, which is a, a property up in, up in the Catskills that's owned by one of the owners of Good, Good Room. And they had a, like sort of like a everybody who, a little party sort of thing, a little gathering more or less, you know, Everybody who who was up there got tested beforehand and were able to kind of like be a, sort of relaxed about it, played some music to a bunch of people around a campfire, more or less. You know, that that was fun. So there's not much performance happening, really. But I have been trying to like really take this time to focus on on, on in the studio. Uh, you know, it's it's real tough. Like I think for everybody right now to feel productive, but I'm trying to make up for it with just, just amount of time spent on it. You know, like I, I think I'm at like 50% like effectiveness, like from where I would normally be in my normal life, because you need that outside stimulus, you know, you need like the world, you need the party from the, from the weekend before to feel inspired to make, music that week or i do at least you know uh, it's like very strange and especially making dance music that's not going to be heard in a club for god knows how long is like a weird bizarre kind of like existential exercise you know like but 
I'm trying to just really just just pound away every day. I'm working, you know, in the studio. And even if like I don't, you know, I spend two or three hours and get an hour of quality work in, it's better than nothing. And I think I'm just hoping that at the end of all of this, I'll have something that I'm proud of to show okay. for it and have some music to release, you know. Let's go back to the lockdown. <laughs> okay. This is a very important moment because for some of us, you know, we were isolated. How did you handle the realities of that? Like the truth be said, you know, everybody yeah. said, okay, now we're going to go into a 60 day lockdown. Um, you're not going to be able to travel. You can't really go to the stores. What did you do? What did you do to cope? Because again, you're in a small apartment. It's like a bunch of kids running around and yeah. you know, you got, okay. You, you, which basically becomes like a buffer because yeah. your baby comes now you push yourself to doing this and I got to take care of that. And you, you just go like, we call it Groundhog Day. We'll do it every day till, till the groundhog comes out and it's done. So how did we get through this? Because depression is a tough mother. It's tough. No, I, I, I feel you. I mean, I think, I'm, I think I'm blessed with pretty solid levels of serotonin in my brain, which is good. I don't, I don't sink into that depression too much. Um, right at the beginning of lockdown, I was sick. Um, I, I got sick. So... I said that my last gig was supposed to be the 13th. Well, on the 11th, there was the opening party for the Studio 54 exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum, which I attended. Because um, I had just completed that. I don't know if you, you heard any of that Studio 54 stuff that I did, the, the Studio 54 EP. Yeah, but I was going to ask you, who's behind that record label? Because nobody knows who that record label is. I'll tell you I'll tell you about it. But um, You can tell us all I, about it. I, mean, I was I, waiting I, to get sure. to that. I know. It's a big mystery. Um, so... Studio 54. I, I caught yeah, <laughs> I caught I caught COVID at that at that event. And you I know did? I caught yes. And I know I caught it because that was like a super spreader event. And a number of my friends who were there also got it as well. So right at the beginning of lockdown, I was sick. And then How I gave bad were you sick. How bad? I mean, I didn't have to be hospitalized. Uh, and you're here. You're here today. Thank you. Yeah, I'm all right. I got the antibodies. Um I I was real sick for a few days and then kind of fatigued and with a random cocktail of symptoms for a few weeks and uh, lost my sense of taste and smell, uh, which was a bummer, especially at the beginning when there was nothing to do except eat, uh, and gave it to my girlfriend, who was a little bit more sick than I was, but we both got over it within a few weeks and we're all right. So that's how I spent the beginning of lockdown, was basically being sick and like, oh God, it was, it was, that was a depressing time. And that was when, you know, so like, wait, 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 let me stop before we go any <laughs> further. So today ABC news sends out a report that our glorious leader, Donald Trump says he took it for the team. He had to do this. Yeah. I'm I want to ask this question. Do you really want to get sick? Yeah. No. Tell you people didn't. how serious this was, even as light as it was for you. Tell them, oh. some people think it's a joke. Oh, no, it was miserable. I mean, it was miserable, and it was like nothing I've ever felt before either. It's very unusual kind of sickness. So, I mean, it starts with, for me, it started with, like, your general kind of flu symptoms, you know, a few days of fever, aches, couldn't sleep, chills at times, sweats, um, you know, that general sort of flu kind of misery. But bad, real bad, and a, and a horrible, horrible headache that like was like seemed to be completely resistant to all forms of, of medication. Aspirin, ibuprofen, yeah. everything, right? 
at the time, they were telling you not to take ibuprofen. They were right. Saying I, I went and got the other stuff. I have it upstairs. Yes. Not ibuprofen. Yeah, all the other stuff was sold out in Brooklyn Actimofen. Actimofen. Yeah, acetaminophen, Tylenol, basically. Right. It's all Actimofen. sold out in stores. Toilet paper's all sold out. You know what I mean? What you, well, I, how many yeah. people, how many freaking rolls do <laughs> I need? I, oh, it drove me crazy. It's not even that I kind of need. disease. You know, it's not that kind of sickness. It's, Dude, you, know, you shit down in store. Everybody's like, what the hell's going on? I used to go to the store. No toilet paper. Yeah, I mean, go to the store. No Tylenol, no toilet paper, no pasta. We're just like, what's going on? You like, know? Oh, yeah. All pastas and rice was gone. Gone. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was, I mean, I will say that if there was any moment that I was feeling dark, it was then. We, you know, it really felt like weird end of days, dystopian, like depressing future that we were in there. But, you know, it passed, and it was still cold too. That was shitty then. Yeah, it was crappy. But we got through it. But the, yeah, but it's not fun, man. It's like, you know, like, like, it's a weird one because even weeks after you're feeling better again, like a random symptom will come back, like all of a sudden out of the blue crazy sinus headache again one day and then it goes away another day you know three four weeks later you get fever out of nowhere it goes away and you can see how it's like it just it's sort of like it gets it gets in your system in a strange way that's different than than other viruses and other sicknesses that i've had and my girlfriend did have there was one night where she was really having a hard time breathing and we were getting really scared and i was still kind of sick and I was like, oh, my God, are we going to the hospital tonight? You know, is that what's happening? And this was at a time where you did not want to be going to the hospital in New York. They were still completely overwhelmed. And, you know, now they have everything under control. And but, yeah, it was scary. It was definitely a little scary. Now I'm going to now I'm going to touch base with you. I mean, you know, he, just, he says to us, don't let it dominate your life. I mean, how do you not let this not dominate your life when this is in your life? Yeah, it's, it's easy to not let it dominate your life if you have every, you know, like every medical technology available to you, all this crap that he's got that nobody else has access to. I mean, you know, like if you had offered me any of those drugs, I would have been like, yeah, give them to me. Just like make this go away, you know, but like, no, that wasn't like, a steroid thing. me up, make me yeah. strong, make me strong, yeah, sure. fast, yeah. whatever, right? No, none of that. I mean, you know, nobody has access to that. I just saw that that. Uh, remdesivir, that that one. I mean, which we, which the U.S. government paid seventy billion dollars to subsidize its creation. Now costs three thousand dollars for a dose. You know what I mean? So like our taxpayers, taxpayer money paid for it. And but if you want it, you still got to pay for it. You have to pay three thousand dollars for it. You know? It's like. All right. So now take us back. <laughs> The horrific Studio Fifty Four night, the Brooklyn. Okay. I was supposed to go, and it I wasn't even, a horrific night. It was a great night. <laughs> I was supposed to go. I think I was in Europe, and I, I remember because my friends went. Um, Robbie Leslie was supposed to play. He didn't come in for it, if I remember. But whatever, Robbie. Justin, was, Justin Strauss good. played that night. Justin Strauss, DJ. Justin Justin filled in for him. Yeah. Justin filled in, and I think Martha, uh, Marsha, yeah, Marsha was supposed to be. So go ahead. What, tell everybody. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a great party, and the exhibit's real cool. And I, um, so my, my connection to the whole thing started with an old friend of mine, um, Greg Cohen, who's a producer, and he called me out of the blue. I hadn't heard from him in, like, literally, I'm going to say more, more than a decade, really. And he told me that he was involved with this, and um, basically the – the brand was 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 bought. The trademark was bought by by somebody, 
and they wanted to start a label and relaunch it. And they, a guy who didn't necessarily wasn't in dance music, but felt a connection to disco through his parents and stuff like that. And he wanted to start a new, new label and he wanted to launch it with basically um, an, an, an EP of reboot, you know, covers basically of, of revamped versions of classic disco songs. Um, and it was a, you know, it was a, it was an interesting project in a lot of ways. Uh, it was difficult, but it was really cool in some ways that, you know, I had, I was able to, to go into the studio. Uh, we recreated uh, all, I mean, arrangements, you know, I, I had, I had full horn arrangements, string arrangements, recreated like the original arrangements of some of these classic songs. And, you know, basically just just gave them my I, I mean honestly like the Joey Negro approach to this was sort of like my guidepost like I don't want it to sound you know so tricked out and modern I wanted it to sound connected to the original music but with you know with a little bit of a modern treatment so that it could hold up against other stuff in, in club for club play and that's that's uh yeah that's what we did and I, I got well, a whole connection record I remember hearing and the sun comes down. Yeah, yeah, at midnight, at midnight. Yeah, at midnight. So you did that too, right? Yeah, yeah. So you rewrote. So you rewrote all the composition parts from the original record that was on TK, right? Yeah, rewrote all. The, we we basically retranscribed all the all the horn arrangements and string arrangements and everything. Got in the studio with a few other great musicians. I have my friend of mine, Morgan Wiley, who's a great keyboard player and and uh, can can play has access to basically every you know classic synth. I played all the guitar and bass parts and sort of arranged and programmed all the, we recorded a lot of drums for everything, recorded, you know, big vocal choruses, multiple singers in the, in there. And like, it was, uh, in that sense, the whole project was really fun, you know, having, dealing with something on such a big scale. It was, uh, you did a real disco. You basically did what, what you would have did when you were born. Yeah, and that's what we did. But then, but then, you know, we made sure everything's locked up and and punchy and and you know has a little bit of that club vibe to it, modern club vibe. Yeah. Who's the singer on that T Connection record? His name's Tommy Bowes, and he was uh, he was he was the singer for Tower of Power for a while, actually. Yeah. Because when I first heard the record, I says, "Wow, the the arrangement sounds pretty close to the original." Yeah. But the singer is not the guy from T Connection. No, no. It's a yeah. I mean, the arrangement's very. It was modeled after the original. If you listen, there's some there's some different stuff like you know there's some like filtering and stuff that yeah, goes well, on. Yeah, you could tell. Yeah, yeah. But it's modernized, uh, modernized for the digital age. Yeah, you know. Um, but but yeah, Tommy's a great singer. He's uh, uh, I got connected with him through Adelie, and she 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 was uh, she's friends with him. Yeah. Because we've all been wondering. What what, well, here's the deal for everybody who understands what happened to studio 54 i played for studio later on but frank annabelle who i know very well in vegas went to mgm and mgm the hotel bought the studio 54 trademark and he mm -hmm. had to pay this guy who owned the label at that time who trademarked the studio 54 name mm -hmm. it's just really funny so when I saw this new thing come out, I was like, well, who the hell is this 354 people now? That's so I don't know about that, but I would, I guess what I would assume is the guy who owns it now bought it from them because there's a new, I think he's now the owner of the trademark. 
I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not exactly sure. Like, a little bit. It's a little no, bit. Because the MGM Corp bought the whole – they created the club in their hotel. So I played for them back at in the 90s, 2000s, early 2000s, and I knew that, that there was a record label floating around at that time. It was a no-bullshit label crap. This yeah. guy wanted ridiculous money. He knew MGM had it, and he had to sell. For them to put it forward, he had to get the rights for that. And then now all of a sudden, here I go. Studio 54 again comes out with you on, and I'm going, who the hell's behind? I know it's not MGM. There's no, no way. It's not, no, it had nothing to do with MGM. So I can't – I'm not sure. I can't speak to that. But maybe he, uh, maybe he acquired the trademark from MGM? Is maybe that, got the record awesome. label side of it. Maybe, maybe he got that, yeah. So where is this label based out of New York? Where is it exactly? Based out of New York. Um, and there's a couple guys who are basically running running it now. Um, and actually, I should connect you with them, Lenny, because you know since you have history with them, and you would be a great person to be part of some of their stuff, even as like maybe like they're they're you know they're they're affiliated with the uh, Sirius F FM, Sirius XM Radio, Sirius Fifth Studio Fifty Four Radio Hour, yeah, Sirius XM, yeah. right? Fifty Four, yeah. So. You would be a good person. You'd be a great. You'd be a great DJ for that, like radio host. Actually, <laughs> I'd love to. I don't know if they would think about me ever to do that, because I know well, they got Valentino on there. I think. That they do. Yeah, they do. But you know, maybe there's. A, I maybe never there's... know. You know, I always said True House Stories is one of these things that doors open. You're like, I never thought of that. You never. Next thing I know. Knock, knock, knock. Who's there? Studio 54. Hey. Well, they look. I will say this. I know they're looking for for more music too. They're looking for new original stuff. So I heard. You know, yeah. I heard. I heard. Yeah. And you know what? Um, I just got a new record from them with this young girl singing on it. And I'm like, I'm not sure where they're going now with this with this new mm -hmm. project because Vision Promotion sent out a whole mailer on their new single, and I was like. The track's cool, but it's kind of like trying to touch disco, but then it's electronic. It's like, what are we doing? Are we trying to be hybrid? Are we trying to do real disco? It's like... Well, that's interesting, because I guess I'm not even on the promo list, so I don't know what to tell you. you know? <laughs> I just, no, I yeah. got... Well, that, I don't think... I, I kind of didn't even respond to it. came into my box, and I went, who the hell is the Studio 54? Like, well, we'll talk about that later, but... <laughs> you know... Look at look at again. I always see now. Listen, everybody. How would you know he's doing all this stuff if we don't ask these kind of questions? I'm not sitting on his lapel and walking around knowing people writing. Holy shit, he had COVID. <laughs> he had COVID. I'm like, he had COVID. Yeah, people got that. People got COVID. You know, a few of us did. No, <laughs> he's like, he got COVID. I was like, let me say, so he got COVID and beat it. Okay. And, I'd be, I have a pin that says I beat it. Yeah. And I don't know anybody that wants to have COVID. You no. Know? It's like, no. You know, and I'm watching, we, 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 right now we're in election, 27 days to election, and you're hearing crazy stuff from coming from that White House every day, more and more coming positive with COVID. Yo, Shit, this is nuts. At this point, like, what does he even do other than tweet and spread the disease? Like, that's like, that's like his, that's the only thing he does. He sits in the friggin' White House, like, tweeting. And, all right, I don't want to. No, you're not here to bash him. Neither am I. Look, I've already been put in the shit doghouse for saying what I have to say because, you know, oh, I'm too liberal. Dude, people.
I'm tired. I want normality. Everybody around us wants to feel normal again. This is too erratic. Like, I I am very liberal. I'm super left-wing. But it's not even about that. It's like, people just need... It's like enough of the fucking chaos already. You know I mean? Every day. Which fire yeah. are we putting out? The real fire yeah. in California or the one in the White House? It's like... Yeah. It's and like, then, I, you, know, you know, to add more, you know, here's my position. I've made black dance music. You know, so have you. Um, now all of a sudden people, there's this racial divide. That yeah. I, kn- I knew existed. Yeah. I went to the garage. I went to, I played at most of these clubs. I never had a problem. I've friends of all colors and races traveled the world. Now all of a sudden it's a problem. I know you must have said the same thing to yourself. Like, what the hell we do now? With no, this? I know. Yeah, it's 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 I depressing. Mean, it's it's the it's like you know how do you begin? People are gonna start right right away starting with the racial card. It's like come on, dude, we're not all cut from this. It's nonsense. You know, there's a couple of people that are acting like this, but we're not all that way. No, of course. And I mean, for me, you know, I I just feel like, you know, I, I remember what it was like to travel when George Bush was president, and um, you know the way that the world kind of looked at America. And I just know, I mean, I know right now it's just going to take a long time to, to, to get our stature back. You know, the world is freaking laughing at this that nobody even understands, you know, can understand how a country can descend into just such absurdity in such a short amount of time. You know, it's, I just want a day where I don't have to think about politics. You know, I'd like to be able to just wake up and not think about politics Dude, and stuff one day, you know? I was like, thinking about that as I was watching Joe Biden's speech. I said, oh my God, am I going to miss the excitement of the fire every day? Because <laughs> Joe Biden yesterday from the Gettysburg Address, you know, he was doing it from Gettysburg. Great speech. Very presidential, very yeah. normal. Yeah. Are we going to want that again? Or do we want the... Oh, man. Place is burning down. Nuclear bomb is on control. I mean, do we want that? I mean, is this is what America and the world wants, or do we want peace, love, and harmony? You know, what I'm it's like I want, I want peace, love, and harmony. That's what I want. Yeah, I want to be able to go out again, hug, hug all of you, you know, hug everybody, dance together like we always did, and not have any reason not to do that. And I yeah. just feel like the way it's going. It just seems like this is never going to end. You know, I'm surprised I'm not writing songs like, boom, boom, I want to die today because of my country. You know, I mean, this is what it's going to e- get. Emo Lenny? Emo Lenny? Is that, is that what you're Emo Lenny, Emo Lenny. Uh, like, like, like Elton John. Bum, bum, bum with the piano. Bum, like Benny the Jets. Duh. Da, 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 you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, oh. But here's the thing. You will keep making records. You won't stop making records. Because what the hell else will you do? Like, if you weren't making music, what would you be doing right now? What would be, I, you know, I'm really honestly not sure. And I, I feel so fortunate that I have this outlet and that I'm able to do it in my home. And you know what I mean? Like, it's it's kind of I'm a little insulated from from some of this from some of this stuff because of that I I'm so lucky. On the other hand, obviously it's not luck, you know what I mean. And there's a lot of 
there's a lot of difficulty with with being in the entertainment industry at this time but at least just just like personally spiritually creatively i have no idea what i would be doing then i don't know i really don't if i didn't if i didn't have this outlet for myself right now do you think clubs as we remember are going to be able to come back i do i do i just think it's i think it's going to take a while i think it's you know we're the first ones out and we'll be the last ones back in basically you know just just logistically because of the the dynamics of of the way the virus spreads it's just it, it'll it won't be until there's truly a vaccine and you can, can kind of confirm that that you're not going to get Jason, yeah. let me break in there. I've asked this to everybody. Are you going to take that vaccination? I mean, I'm not taking the first one. I'm not taking the first one they release, I don't think. But uh, Are you going to even no. take the second one? <laughs> we'll have to see. I mean, I'm not taking any shit that Trump tries to push on me. That's for sure. But, like, if, if things, like, okay, so hypothetically, if, if, Biden wins the election and there's a Democrat Democratic control of Congress and things start to like proceed, you know, if the adults, the adults start like, you know, running the show again. Um, yeah, you know, maybe, I don't know. We'll see. I'm not sure. I mean, also remember I had, I had it and I have antibodies. It doesn't mean you're immune buddy. It does not, but I will say, and I could be wrong about this. But I do have this feeling that I fought it off once, you know, I just, not, not that I'm being any less cautious or careful in, in my daily life than, it, than anybody else is, but I just have this feeling that like, you know, I beat it once, I think I would probably beat it again. Um, I feel less pressure to get the vaccine uh, than maybe somebody else who's been real, you know, really, really scared and, and, uh, I don't know, but I'm not sure, man. You know, I mean, he's literally like, you know, like basically nationalized the entire, the entire like disease control branch of government. So like, it's impossible to know what is actually going on, uh, what the real numbers are. So, or what they're actually doing, you know, I mean, clearly he wants to get a vaccine out before the election because he thinks that's going to help his chances, but there is no vaccine that's possible that can work in that time. I mean, in, in scientific terms, if you research any vaccinations, normally at minimum, they three years at minimum. I mean, they could, they could put a vaccine out. The problem is it will, it doesn't, there's not enough time for it to go through clinical trials, you know, right, so what I'm that, saying is yeah. that it works, you know, right. it could work, but it also could have horrible side effects. You know what I mean? Like there's not enough time to test what the side effects of the thing are. That's, that's the problem. Like, is it dangerous for people in other ways? I don't know. Are you, I, so what I'm hearing is you're not taking it, huh? I know how it's going to happen though. They're going to say to you, you got a gig in the UK. You got it. Like you're going to Africa. You got to get your immunizations. Watch. It's going to be, I'm telling I, I tell this to everybody. They're going to you know, force us. It's probably not even a hypothetical. I'm supposed to play defected Croatia next August. You know, like what's going to be going on by then? Who knows? Like if that can even happen, if that's, if that's, I mean, question marked, question mark, because Spain already said clearly, 
Ibiza will not open any of its clubs so they have vaccination. Is that not crazy? I don't know, man. No, all... first we were all like this. Well, all right, let's just plan well, six months. All right, let's just see what we can do. And then it was nine months. Now it's a year. There's 18 months. I'm like, oh, man, this shit's getting longer and further. No, I know. And I have friends who are who are pretty much giving up music, you know, or who have decided they, they have to make make a change, you know, that they feel too vulnerable and and needs, you know, can't can't rely on don't you know, don't, we don't know when stuff is coming back. If you're if all your income is, is tied to gigs, it's a real tough time to be an entertainer, you know, or to work in the industry or anything. And it's funny. I see everybody in the UK, like a lot, I follow, have a lot of friends from the UK and I follow them on social media. And there's a lot of talk about in the UK about how the government is not supporting uh, the entertainment industry. And, and like, it's like, at least it's a friggin' conversation there here. It's like, Oh no, the government is definitely not supporting shit. You know what I mean? They're not even, they're not doing anything here. It's like, and then and everybody just like assumes, Oh no, 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 nobody's getting any help. Like, no, like it's, it's crazy to me. Like, yeah. I know. I know. And then you get aggravated, you get depressed and you say, what other shit do we need on the plate now to deal with? Yeah, I just saw that, you know, they're opening a bunch of like, they found a bunch of mummies in, in Egypt and they're opening up all the sarcophaguses. And that's just like, the, that's the next thing that we have to deal with is like the mummies coming to attack the entire planet. <laughs> so we're going to call it the day after? Right, yeah. <laughs> that's what the deer needs right now. Sorry, I don't mean to get dark or anything, you know. It's just, a, it's this is real. No, you got to be able to, listen, this is what, yeah. I'm sorry. Let, let, let's clarify everybody again. True house True house stories. stories. Not, I'm full of bullshit stories, which we could <laughs> do. Now, let me give you the bullshit one. I'm going to go play next week. You know where? where? At my new disco, it's called Pillows and Sheets on the second floor. <laughs> We got full mattresses, ready to roll. Everything's in place. You have all your dreams and all your fantasies come true. I have to say, thank God I've been very busy with all of you guys. And all of you guys every week give me a lot of work to do. Having to get this show ready, is, it's my highlight of the week, along with everything else I'm trying to stay above water with. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know... You're, you're more of the electronic guy now, and you've also gotten a taste of, we're going to go back to studio life. You've also gotten a taste of working with the bands again, doing the yeah. whole disco studio. For the, did you guys track that to tape, or was it all Pro Tools oriented, or Logic? What was all that about when you did? Which, when, which one are you talking about? Let's just say the T connection when you had midnight record. Oh, okay. Um, the, the Studio 54 stuff. So, no, I mean, we didn't track the tape. Uh, we, we, we recorded, I, it was, it was primarily recorded in logic. Um, that's, that's what I work in. Um, but I mean, you know, it was like those things were all the live music was, was, wasn't recorded here. It was recorded in a proper studio. No, that's, I know that's what I'm saying. You got a chance to have everybody set up, mic, mic everybody. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was not, there were elements of it that were done at the same time it was it wasn't you know it wasn't like 
like Quincy Jones in the studio, in the giant studio with a huge disco orchestra, everybody playing at once for the most part. There were some things that recorded at the same time, like guitar and bass and keyboard parts and some bass and drum parts were recorded together. But for the most part, things were tracked at different times and overlaid. Um, so, you know, the first thing that we did, the way we approached it was getting kind of like like an arrangement that we wanted to follow using the original songs, kind of like chopping them up into an arrangement. And that was kind of like the template for what, how we were going to like build out our production. And then from there started with the drums, recorded drums for, for all, it was originally six tracks. It got whittled down to four, but recorded drums for all six tracks and then began to just sort of like layer the pieces on top, you know, building, building, uh, uh, structure out of it. Uh, so then once once the drums were down, as I said, bass was recorded with drums in some case, in some cases, but then bass, guitar, keys, the sort of rhythm elements of the track, and then uh, percussion, all the different percussion that was done. And we had two or three different percussionists who came in and recorded parts. Uh, one guy who was more of a conga player, one guy who played timbales and other Latin percussion. Um, like the, the big timbali stuff you hear on the At Midnight, uh, the T-Connection track. Um, and then and then got all the singers in. The different singers had a bunch of different vocal sessions for all the different singers. Um, strings, horns, all that stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, it was, a, it was a big undertaking. And the thing was, it had to happen really quickly. Uh, they originally were trying to get the whole thing. I mean, we didn't start even talking about it until like November of last year. And the recording basically started after the new year. So I think I, I was in Brazil over, over New Year's for last year playing at this uh, festival Mare. And I got home, I think on the seventh or eighth and basically dove right into it and had all of the live recording done by the end of the month. So on, on six songs, all of that different tracking, drums, bass, guitar, all the different synths, all the different vocals, strings, horns, percussion, everything was done, recorded by the end of the month, and then it had to be produced, essentially. But why, this is what I understand. Why put the time constraints so hard on you? I know. I yeah, don't the, understand the record labels. Why do they do that? Because they wanted to have it ready for the Studio 54 exhibit. That was their original idea. Oh, so this is like a last-minute... The light bulb went on. Let's find somebody to do this. Oh, great. We yeah. found them. Go run in the studio, get a contract, and go, go, go. Yeah. But then then what ended up happening. And we lost. Yeah, I mean. Oh, Say it sorry. Again. So, no, sorry. You're back. You're back. Say it again. Yeah. Say it, again. it became clear that it just wasn't even going to be possible. You know what I mean? Like they were talking about trying to get vinyl pressed and everything before to have something to sell in at the exhibit. And uh, it just, you know, like, so now like three weeks of, of solid recording and that's like a really short amount of time to do all of that recording, you know? Uh, and it was like, you know, my, my worksheet for the whole thing, how it had to be done. I mean, I basically had like an Excel sheet of like calendar, like how to map it all out and how to do it all. It was like a math problem. And we got all that done. And so now it's like early February and now I have to take these tracks and make them sound like something, you know? Okay, so you but, had everything staffed out, literally staffed out. Did you staff it all out? You, you um, I did some of it. Some of it I did. Some of it. Wow, like, I'm impressed, bro. 
Yeah, some of oh, oh man, that's that's awesome. You're like you're our Don Ray of of, of the 2020s. Yes. <laughs> Don Ray, hey. there he is. All right, everybody. Let, that's a lot of work. People, that's a lot of work to staff out a record. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't do all of it. Some of it, like like some of the string parts were, the, the strings were able to kind of transcribe themselves. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I had to, I had to basically, I had to do a lot of it. But, uh, and paper, go to the keyboard and figure out the chord progression because you're not sure if, if if he's he's got it right. You know, it happens. Yeah. You got to go there and, we and were, hit the keyboard and go, wait a minute. That's not the right note. Let's get this right because we got to make it sound like the record now. Yeah, I think even harder than that, honestly, is like when you go through even like the synth parts. You know, like you go through like "Got to Have Love" and like the Don Ray part, and trying to figure out, okay, what is which synth is that? All right, how do we get that exact sound? How do we get that exact phrasing? We really were trying to be meticulous about. Which one it. did you do? "Got to Have Your Loving"? "Got, have, got to Have Loving." Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> I know that sound. I know the sound. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot, of, you know, all of those, those were, those were very, very layered productions, all of them, you know, there's a lot, lot there. So we were trying to basically, we, the place where we, we didn't end up using everything, but we started with, okay, let's get it all. Like, let's recreate it all. And then we'll pull out and use what we want and rearrange things. But basically we, we what we essentially did was, make new versions of the tracks to then kind of remix you know like yep yeah like as if we had the stems from the original project and yeah so good job i'm telling you i listened to it i was like wow this is really good. yeah i mean you know without getting too deep into it i think i could have done it a little bit differently had i not had to um how do I say this? Make some compromises that maybe, or make some, you know, if I had complete license to do it the way that I wanted to, it might have come out a little bit different. Just leave it at that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> listen, everybody, there's always this with record yeah. labels and yeah. producers. And yeah. There's always yeah. this, you know, it's a knock of the powers, the power struggle. I think we should do it. No, we don't have the coins anymore. We need to do it like this. And you're like, damn yeah. you, mother. <laughs> beep, beep. You want to blow them in? Put the fire. Yeah, whatever we will do. You know, like that. But you deal with it. You deal with what you got to deal with. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but, hey, and look, for what you did and what you were dealing with, Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was a lot of work. I had no idea you were behind this. I had, thanks to the way videos, thanks to the way promos come, they don't have much, much uh, who did what. Nobody knows anything anymore. Well, I mean, I will say in this in this particular instance, it was a contracted thing, and they they kind of have treated it that way, you know. So there, it, I haven't always been, you know. There's been. I haven't always been credited exactly and I'm okay with that, you know, because I, it was understood from the beginning, it was going to be a certain way and you know, it's all right. It is what it is. But, uh, but see true house stories brings out the truth. God damn it. <laughs> not fake news. This is the real shit. No, it's the truth. No, it's no, you, you, you did it. You contractually agreed to do it and you're behind it. I have no idea. And until you just said this, I had no clue. Yeah. The questions. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. What are you most proud of that you worked on? What's the most proud thing you've done? 
I, I think the thing I'm most proud of probably that's out there is, is vertigo. And, and that is the, that's the kind of direction that I'm, I'm trying to, or just, just, you know, the, the original music that I've written that's out there. Um, some of the stuff that I wrote for tortured Souls, some of the stuff that I've done on my own. And, you know, I mean, look, I've, I've also done a ton of edits as people know. And, uh, no, you know, we don't know that. No, nobody knows that. That's that part they is not. Nobody knows yeah. what that is like. I, you know, look, I, 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 but I had have, a, but there's something that you hold close to your heart. Yeah, that vertical. I guess the vertical record is that record. In the yeah, same token, in the same token, what is the worst thing you like to disassociate yourself from? Oh gosh. Not halfway. It, the worst. I say it, and I'm not disassociating myself. Um, uh, what would I say, man? You know, I think there was like, for whatever reason, I I, I was doing some remixes for for Columbia Sony Urban, like in the mid 2000s, um, back when remixes actually paid some good money, and um, but I had really had no clue what I was doing, honestly. Like and. I had, you know, I think I think some of them came out all right, but there's a couple I wouldn't say I'm not proud of, but I just I knew that if I had a chance to do it now, I could do a better job with it, you know. Well, that's hindsight. That's playing Monday Night Football after the fact. Yeah. You can fix the game. We're talking about you in the middle of it. You have to live with what you dealt with. This is it. You're dealing with what you did. So leave it there. Yeah, I mean, probably I would probably say, you know, then in that case, uh, you know some some dj sets that i might have flailed early on or something you know like yeah floundered the flounder yeah. like, <laughs> the old man tells the young man <laughs> the old man jason tells the young jay crib what he shouldn't not do and what he should do what would you tell that young guy i, I would i would tell him? that guy to to uh, this is really actually a lesson that i've learned with djing and, you know, because I'm DJing is a much newer thing for me than some of the other things that I do with, you know, playing music and production. I think I finally learned, it's taken me a little bit of time to learn that, that you need to love every single track that you play. You know what I mean? Like you cannot play a song that you don't personally love. Like just because, yeah, you got this promo, you think it's cool, you want to try it out, you know, this label is doing some cool things. No, like every single piece of music that you play needs to be something that you fully stand behind. I don't think I totally got that at first, you know, because you get you get obsessed with, oh, I, I think this is gonna be a cool sounding transition, or this is these two tracks sound good together, or this is a hot track right now, that kind of thing. You know, I think I think that it's really that's something that I would tell my my younger self, you know, like that's really important because I have so much music that I love. There's no reason to ever play a song that I don't actually love you know what i mean i think that's something that i took me a little while to figure out as a dj wow. all yeah. right so you gotta so so everyone please believe in what you do wholeheartedly don't half step jason's saying you gotta, <laughs> believe you gotta believe is that also applies to the music you're making it does it does the interesting thing about music the music thing for me in production and songwriting is that you know, as much as I operate sort of in this dance music format, I still have tastes that are kind of all over the place. So I think that 
it's been, it's been, it's, it's always tricky for me to kind of like balance out the mood that I'm in one day, you know, with what my ultimate goals are in terms of, you know, production and, and what I want to put out there into the world. But, um, I think that, yeah, I think that the, the lesson is to really just kind of, um, like trust your gut around certain things, you know, like, like if sometimes, sometimes I think I've had tracks that I was like, eh, I don't know about this. And then, you know, you, you, you play it, but you did it and it was something that you liked and felt good about. And then you start to second guess yourself later. But I think that ultimately if you do things with like, with like your true intention and that, that it's valuable. I don't know. I mean, that sounds really generic, but like, but no, it's, it's not generic. It, it's real. No, it's real. Yeah. No, because we all compromise sometimes for the for the check. Sometimes right. there's a compromise that happens. You know, the money's good, but man, the track's not so great. We'll deal with it. Mm -hmm. Or the track can be absolutely off the chain, and there's hardly no money in the budget. Yeah, it goes both ways. Those things are just sort of on a like. Uh, like a Jesus. giant pull cord in the sky somehow, you know, like big time. Yeah. Big <laughs> time. What are you working on right now, Lenny? I'm just remixing this project for this guy, Ed Ground in Brazil. Uh -huh. I'm remixing another project. I'm writing some disco tracks. Nice. And I'm finding that everybody wants my nineties house sound. They do. Yeah, they that's do. everybody wants. So I'm trying to give it back to them. And it's not an easy thing to recreate something that you kind of gotten away from. Yeah. But now all of a sudden you have to find again, but they want it like I did it then. It's like, I don't do it the same way now, but you understand what I mean. What were you working on back then? Were you working on an MPC or an SP 1200? I had, I had back then, First of all, my console at that time was a Tac Scorpion in the 90s. Amec Tac Scorpion was number one. I used a Mac Classic with Master Tracks Pro. Mm -hmm. And I had a two inch, I first I had a 16 track one inch, then I had a two inch machine. So, but we had tons of rack. Yeah, I had Super JX and all Juno 106s and uh, T3 Cork, all that stuff. You know, I had keyboards yeah. up the yin yang to the, and, we would use combination parts because you didn't have enough polyphony in those keyboards in those days. You have to make combination sounds, track everything. So you had to marry it to make it work. And you couldn't digitally do editing because everything was on a tape machine. So right. things were loose in the sense they weren't as congruent as everybody's so used to hearing music today everything is on the one everything is yeah. dead on we were doing a lot of stuff where you felt the shift it yeah. made swag i had an interview with earl young and i asked him this question and i'm going to ask you this question i know you know salsa orchestra i know you've mixed some of the records do you think salsa orchestra did the whole thing in one shot together if i ask you that question if you when you listen to those tapes no i don't think so i think that i think that probably they would record rhythm section and then layer layer some other things on top that would because be the first question earl young was from me was 
you know, we saw the Southsoul Orchestra together in, in in pictures. We saw that, you know, you guys performed in this and that. I, and we asked him what the pecking order was. And it was simplistically like this. It was, he said it was B-H-Y. B-H-Y was Ron Baker, Norman Harris, and Young. Earl Young. And those three, Norm Har Norman was playing the guitar, that guitar sound. Ron played the bass. And Earl played those drums. And on every record you hear coming out of almost, let's say, 96% of the records coming out from Gamble Hop and most of them, those three guys are on every record. Right. 96% of them. He doesn't even know most of the records he plays. He'll hear and go, that's me. He yeah. can't remember. He said, there's so many records we did. He said, we did records where we just did backing track and they got Johnny Mathis to go do the vocals. We never saw that. We just gave them, right. do what right. you do. Here's some money. Bye. Yeah. So when you hear those tapes now, oh, I love it. Salsa Orchestra, all those records. People thought that Salsa Orchestra, okay, one shot. Don Ronaldo's violins, everybody came in. Okay, one, two, three, boom. He started laughing. He said, no way. No. Said, we would yeah, do our no. thing, we would leave. And then Joe, Pop Joe, Joe Tarzia from, from uh, Sigma. They record all the other parts in different, you know, four string guys layered. So similar to what you did, as I was yeah, listening, I was say, yeah, was similar to how they did it back then. Budgets were tight; they made it work. Right. We're talking forty years ago, forty plus years ago. Right. No, I mean, there was probably very few records where, I mean, going back to even the '60s, you know, like a Phil Spector production where they did get a full orchestra in the room recording, but like. Even, I mean, I think about like a record like Off the Wall, like Quincy Jones. I mean, I think even that, you know, they were layering that stuff. You know, they were not. Eddie Johnson played the bass guitar. Yeah. I mean, Louis yeah. Johnson. This guy came yeah. in, Eddie Van Halen, to play beat. I mean, they even had different people come in different days. Nobody, yeah. had, nobody I know. The only one that I've ever seen where they actually had a full orchestra was like a Sinatra gig. Yeah. Frank Sinatra, where they had a full orchestra, one microphone recorded, and it was done. Right. Most of the time. Nobody had that kind of budget to play with. Yeah, and also stylistically, it, it, the music doesn't work like that. When you want to be real precise with rhythm and and get takes that are really consistent, you know, you can't you can't record a full band because what if you know everything sounds great except the drummer misses a beat, you know, or drummer it drummer happens. Yeah, like. So yeah. before we let you go, you know, I'm the girl serious now. Okay. <laughs> what do we expect to see from you the next? time what's coming up now for you okay you can't say um, gigs you know gigs on hold no, no there's no gigs but uh I, so right now what i'm what i've been hard at work at is is um i've got a few re remixes that i'm that i'm finishing up uh for pretty much for razor and tape releases that are forthcoming um i don't have any more glitter box stuff that i'm doing right now this last year I've done a million remixes and I'm trying to trying to put a hold on the remixes for now to focus on original stuff. So pretty much since lockdown, I have been working on writing and producing a lot of um, new original songs. Uh, and I'm hoping to, I'm hoping that by, uh, that to pull together pretty much like an album's worth of stuff uh, to hopefully come out maybe next summer. Uh, I am collaborating with a lot of different people right now. Um, who, I, who am I working with? I've got some stuff coming with that I'm working on with Amy Douglas, some stuff that I'm working on with James Brown, um, working with Daniel from Phenomenal Handclap Band on some stuff. 
my friends from this group underground system um basically it's going to be you know a full album of new original music with a lot of different features and and guest artists that uh, i'm collaborating with so i'm saying it now so i'm making you know willing it into reality by actually telling it to people that yeah there will be an album at some point hopefully and there will be an album in 2021 yeah j crib record measure tape or just gonna be on what label is it uh that i don't i'm not sure about that yet you know well, well i'm not sure where it'll come out but uh and i would i would assume that i'll have i'll have some more glitter box singles at the very least too and maybe maybe the album too but uh, I guess we'll have to see about that. All right. Well, you may have you may I may have to beg Jay Crib to do a remix for Lenny. We'll no, see. you don't have to beg, man. I got a knock on the door. Jay Crib, yo, <laughs> yo, man, what are you doing, boy? I need a remix now, now. <laughs> man, this has been awesome. I, you, you've taught us. You've taken us on a journey. You've given us perspective. We actually wish the best that you don't get sick again. Oh my God, that blew it. That was like a whoa moment for us. I mean, people were at home going, holy shit. Wow. I wasn't ready for that one, but I'm glad you're here Sorry. to tell the story. Didn't mean to drop it on you. Yeah. No, I'm glad. No, listen, I'm happy that I'm happy it's a good story and not, you know, um, one of these stories like the woman that was on the television this morning with the, her husband uh was the broadway actor who they oh made. yes yes oh, man man this guy had no underlying conditions and he went through 90 days and in the end done done yeah he's about the same age as me i think too he's like 43 44 something that's yeah, a long journey it's like yo it's something it's a hike this bad boy yeah and now the best is the best is stop all communications for stimulus money now. Stop all PPP money. Stop everything till after the election, till after I win. I was it's like, oh, you got a big pair of balls to come out with this <laughs> now. Whoa, you take people's money away? You got damn right. You know, they like you now. They ain't gonna like you then. <laughs> you take someone's cash. I always said, you want to hurt somebody? Don't hurt them anyway. Take their money. Watch <laughs> what happens. You take someone's cash flow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well crazy times, dude, in, in the USA. My European, my Australian friends every morning are writing to me shit like, is he nuts? I'm like, <laughs> I don't know yeah. what to say. The place is burning down around me. I don't know what to do. It's like which which fire I put out first. You know, it's like disco fire. <laughs> the roof, the roof. The roof is on fire. We don't need no water. Let the mother burn. You know, it's like that. Literally like that now. Let it burn. Let it burn down. <laughs> Shit. I miss the UK. I miss traveling. Oh my God. Oh, I miss traveling. I do too. Yeah, I do too. I bet you do. And I mean, this is, man, this is the first time, like, since I started playing music over 30 years ago, you know, that I've gone this long without a gig. You too, I'm sure. It's like, it's you know I, I forget about that sometimes what's but like what's again yeah yeah, yeah. i don't know what that is anymore yeah i'm a gardener a chef you know i'm everything everything anything that i could be around here it's like that's that's my life right now it's like you just do everything 
to, to stay busy, do what you do, and hope for the best. The miracles are coming. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again, Mr. Kriv. And it's not yeah. Danny Kriv. It is Jason Kriv. No relation. No relation. Jason, what background are you? Uh, it's uh, Russian. The, well, the name is oh, Russian. Russian. Yeah, Krivlov. Yeah. Krivlov. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Are you second, third generation American? I mean, where I am third, third generation. Oh, my grandparents were Russian, dude. You're American. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> You're American. Borscht soup is too far from you now. No, no, yeah, I have no connection. My grandparents were born in Brooklyn, so. See? Yeah. <laughs> so you, when you said pasta, I'm like, dude's not talking <laughs> borscht. He's not looking at Russian food. He's looking for Italian. He's too Americanized. <laughs> oh, wow. It, Italian. Being American, Brooklyn for all you know, around the world. I've been to Brooklyn. Brooklyn was a big Italian neighborhood for a long time. Still is. Still is. Still a Art long too. time. I mean, like you, you, they used to, they used to, people used to buy their houses around the Salamonia, which is the the Italian pork store. They'd have <laughs> to have one near them so they can walk to get their products to go home to cook. No joke. On that note, thank you again, Mr. Crip. Thanks, Next man. week, we have K-Class from the UK. K-Class is coming in to tell us all about their stories, the rise to fame, all the commercial records, all the success, and also the roller coaster ride to fame and down and up and all around. So every week, <laughs> every week, right here on Facebook Live, YouTube, we podcast, and thank you all for tuning in and sharing. And thank you, Mr. Kriv, for giving us the science, the knowledge, and also knowing now how multi-talented, multiverse you are. Have a great week, everyone. A great weekend. Be safe. Remember, wear your mask. Stay vigilant. Peace. <laughs>